Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Buchanan Dying, John Updike. John Updike, almost no one has ever written a book about James Buchanan, President James Buchanan, and you have written a book and a play. What, what is your interest in James Buchanan? Well, I'm a Pennsylvanian. I was very much a Pennsylvanian for the first 18 years of my life and uh, was struck uh, by the absence of any no notice that James Buchanan had been here, as it were. There, no, there may be some Buchanan streets, and perhaps in Lancaster there's kind of commemoration, but by and large he's... He's an unsung uh, hero, the only president we've had, this great state, this Keystone State, why indeed. It's sort of a puzzle as to why Pennsylvania, unlike Ohio and Virginia, uh, only had one president, and that one, uh, the consensus seems to be not a very good one. So uh, anyway, I had written my first three novels about Pennsylvania, and I thought I could cap the set by making a historical novel about Buchanan's James Buchanan's life. As I got into it, it was a long life and a long life in public service. So there was a host of characters that he had to deal with uh, from when he, when he was a young man to when he finally became an elderly president, the oldest one up to then. Uh, so in a way, it was too much to handle. I found the whole thing of trying to imagine what it was like inside a log cabin or antebellum Washington too, too difficult for me. So. In the end, I took my little book learning and uh, turned it into a play, a play which nobody wants to produce because I think it would run five or six hours. Uh, but it contains my feelings and my impressions about Buchanan. And, uh, Did you come out of it liking him more or less? Oh, I loved him. I mean, I remember when I was in the peak of my research, I had a dream in which I turned and told my wife, uh, uh, James Buchanan is my best friend. Um, you know, he, I got very into him, and I think he was a terribly uh, nice, admirable man. Uh, it could well be, as historians claim, that he was very ill-suited for the historical moment in which he happened to be president and to which he contributed. I mean, he wasn't a passive uh, president. In fact, one of Gene Baker's, the newest biographer's points is that he was a rather active and strong president but he was strong, in her view, in all the wrong directions. He was pro-Southern. Uh, I say to that, I would say, well, why not? He was elected by the South, basically. His friends were all Southern. He was from a state that's sort of in the middle, just north of the Mason-Dixon line. And so all of his agricultural, he wasn't really a big city lover either. He already went to New York. He liked, he understood uh, rural, small town, small city, life and was attracted to the people who shared that with him. Why'd you like him? You seem to be in a minority Oh, why did I like him? One. Well, he was very dutiful after all. He took all these uh, orphaned uh, nieces and nephews under his wing. 
he, his correspondence is very uh, courteous uh, when you uh, get into it. Uh, and he was uh, intelligent and uh, adaptable. Uh, Andrew, Jackson, uh, Andrew Jackson said, uh, wanting him to get out of the country, basically, I think, that I'm going to make you ambassador to Russia. And that certainly is out of the country in those days. And he, you know, he said, OK, after some hesitation. And Buchanan was a great hesitator. Um, he learned French so he could speak with the Russians, with the Russian court. And uh, he was also was a very able and uh, efficient. In fact, in all the posts he held, he was a, did, it, did everything well. It was a life of unparalleled success until, until his presidency. Uh, James Buchanan also shows up in this book of yours, Memories of the Ford Administration. Uh, you, and uh, the cover is a glomming of James Buchanan onto Gerald Ford. Any connection between the two? Not really, and that wasn't my idea of, of the jacket, but that jacket was cooked up by some of Knopf's uh, new uh, avant-garde, uh, and it is an arresting jacket, those two faces. Uh, I was troubled by the fact that I had not been able to write the novel. I had turned it into a play, and a kind of a closet play, a closet drama, something to be read more than performed, although it was performed a few times. Uh, so I thought I'd try it again. And my trouble was the indeterminacy of the historical novel. I mean, you don't really know what happened. Even events that are quite well covered, like the last months of Buchanan's administration, it's not entirely clear what really did happen. So. If you're a fiction writer, you're used to being king or god, even in your little world. What you say happened, happened. History, no. You're always there's always more you might know. There's always in, you know indeterminacy, uh, uh, imperfect records. Uh, so uh, I thought if I invented a would-be historian who was trying to write about Buchanan, I would have an intermediary to cloak my own uncertainties and vagueness. And so uh, I forget his name, Alf Landon, isn't it? No, not Alf Landon. Um, He's named after Alf Landon. What is the hero's name? I'll have to look it up. Be a good, good uh, test for both of us. Uh, Alf. Let's call him Alf. I'll have to look it up. No, it's uh, so Alf, Clayton? Yeah, Alf Clayton. Yeah, Alf Clayton. Alf Clayton, of course. Uh, so his point about the Ford administration was that he was so involved in uh, uh, an affair or several affairs he was having that he had no record at all of the Ford administration. It just went right by him those two plus years, whereas he knows a lot about Buchanan and is trying to write this biography. And it's the heyday of Derrida and uh, construction, uh, deconstruction, and when we doubt everything. And so it's a kind of a comical, scholarly, an extended scholarly uh, uh, joke, uh, in a way. Maybe too, too long. A 300-page joke is perhaps a bit long, but uh, it was a book that I put a lot of myself into and a lot of Buchanan into. You said you grew up in Pennsylvania? Oh, yes. Where? Near Reading. I was born in the Reading Hospital uh, and was taken to my grandfather's uh, home in Shillington, which is a suburb, a streetcar suburb of Reading. And uh, my parents, uh, my mother was living with her parents at the time, and my father had recently lost his job with the phone company. So uh, we were sort of dependent upon my grandfather's hospitality. I was not aware of any of this when I was born or grew up. Uh, it was a happy growing up for me. We stayed in Shillington for 13 years, but at the end of World War II, 
we had a little spare money. People made some money during the war, and uh, my mother took it into her head to buy back the farm where she had been raised, which was 11 miles away, to the south of Reading. And uh, we all moved there to an un unimproved farmhouse, no electricity, no heating, no plumbing, uh, and gradually made it uh, livable. And uh, so that was my home until I went away to college. So, but for those 18 years, I was very much a Pennsylvanian, almost never left the state, in fact, and was a very patriotic Pennsylvanian. One of my early thoughts about myself was that I was so lucky to be born in Pennsylvania, the best state in the Union, I thought, on rather little evidence, but I, that was my feeling. I've read in, in the, the research for this interview, I read two things about you. Is you love reading, R-E-A-D-I-N-G, and you love Reading, R-E-A-D-I-N-G. What is it about Reading? If someone has never been to Reading, what's, uh, what's there to see? Uh, it makes for confusion, too, because uh, if you're beginning a sentence with uh, reading has been my life's delight, say, then it sounds like <laughs> Reading has been my life's delight. Uh, reading is a rather majestic city. It's an industrial city. You know, at the time I was around there, it was the fifth biggest city in Pennsylvania boasted a population of about 100,000, a good deal less now. Uh, the mills had already gone south, a lot of them, so it's like many industrial or rust belt cities. Its prime was always back then and never, never now. But when I was growing up, uh, the downtown was still very active. There were five first-run movie theaters in Reading. It was a great movie town. They often got uh, pre premieres of Hollywood movies. Very two big department stores. My mother worked in one of them for a while. It's thrilling, it was thrilling to visit. You'd go in in the trolley car and there would be people and cars and stores and all that. So uh, I have nothing but fond memories of Reading and of Shillington. Um, yeah, well, that says it. I guess most of us tend to love uh, where we grew up. Uh, I realize now, looking back, that mine was a kind of unusual boyhood in that I uh, was lived in the same two houses, but in the same county, went to the same school, kindergarten through 12th grade. And uh, the Depression and then the war had the effect of sort of stopping change. The Chillington didn't change much all the time I, I knew it. And uh, I was surprised when after the war things did begin to change. And uh, there's also generations now that have grown up with no special state loyalties or really place loyalties. Their fathers have moved a number of times and they, they uh, don't identify with the locality. But I very much identify with Pennsylvania. And although I went to uh, college in New England and uh, I have become a New Englander, uh, it was Pennsylvania and my experiences in the first 18 years of my life that really interested me enough to try to write fiction about it. Now, your grandparents were Pennsylvania Dutch. Had your family been in Pennsylvania for generations and generations? Uh, my mother's maiden name was Hoyer, and uh, her father, John Franklin Hoyer, and his wife, Katie Ziemer Hoyer, were indeed Pennsylvania Dutch. I think that particular branch of, it's a fairly common name, as you know, Hoyer, in in East Southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, they'd come over after the revolution had been won and they saw it was safe uh, <laughs> or something settled. And so, yeah, for a number of generations. And uh, when we moved to my, my uh, mother's uh, birthplace, the farm, the nearby churchyard uh, connected to the Plow Church had stones going back to when they were in German 
end of the final stones were sandstone that the weather had removed the names from. But she knew that these were her remote ancestors. So yes, I have a long Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania in this, uh, in my heritage. Your mother was fairly well educated for a woman at the time. Yeah, surprising, although it didn't seem surprising, but looking back, yes, uh, she was bright, went through the local one-room schoolhouse very quickly. They moved them right through if they could do the work, and so she graduated. Her secondary school education, in a way, ended when she was 12. At that tender age, she was sent off to the Kutztown Normal School, so-called, graduated from that at 16, and then went on to Ursinus uh, at the age of 16. She was the baby of her class, and indeed was generally the baby of any group she was in. She kind of had a young uh, attitude, uh, and met my father there. Uh, he was from New Jersey, from Trenton, minister's son, uh, taller than she. She was uh, tall for a woman of that era, not extraordinarily tall today, you see six put women, women everywhere, but at uh, 5'10 or so, she was tall, but she found a man who was 6'2, and um, they married. Uh, uh, yeah, she, uh, she went to Cornell also to get a master's degree. At some point in her life story, she decided she wanted to be a writer, went to Cornell, received some encouragement. A professor there called Lane Cooper encouraged her, or taught her, and so uh, all the time I was growing up, I was uh, housed with my mother's ambition and the sound of her little Remington typewriter and the brown envelopes that went out and then came back. She never really uh, made it into the magazines, but it was a magazine kind of era, hard for today's young to remember, or remember, I mean, hard to believe that the Post was right, being published right down in Philadelphia, Colliers. There was a lot of fiction being run in magazines, and she had hoped to join the, join the crowd. You said she was bright when she was growing up. Were you smart in school? Uh, smart enough. Uh, not strikingly, I don't think. Uh, my class had a lot of teachers' children in it. I wasn't the only one. Uh, my father became a school teacher uh, after he, losing his job in the early Depression. Um, some of them had had even tutorial and arrived in kindergarten knowing somehow to read. But uh, yeah, as time went on, I got smarter uh, and was valedictorian or co-valedictorian of my high school class. Uh, this may not sound like much of an achievement, but in that class it was pretty good. There were three of us. Uh, the other two had total straight A's. I had one B once in biology, which I always thought should have disqualified me, but because it was absorbed into the final grade, uh, I was allowed to pretend to be the valedictorian or a valedictorian. What was the high school? Shillington High, now gone. Shillington High was merged in, a couple years after I graduated, it was merged into a regional school called Governor Mifflin uh, High School. Uh, the building continued as a sort of junior high and then uh, sometime in the 80s, it was knocked down and no longer physically exists, as well as the name having vanished. And you said you went to college in New England? Yeah, uh, Harvard. Uh, uh, my mother, uh, I drew a lot as a child and really wanted to be a cartoonist. That was something I could understand, both in the comic strips in the paper and the cartoons in magazines. and. Uh, 
I like drawing. Uh, what my mother encouraged me. Uh, I got lessons from the local artist, that kind of thing. But and I went to college, uh, still being uh, having the hope of becoming a cartoonist. And I went to Harvard in part because it had the Harvard Lampoon, which a magazine now long defunct called Flair had run an article about. So the Lampoon was the best humor magazine, and if you were hoping to be a cartoonist for the New Yorker, the Lampoon was the next rung in the ladder to mount. But in those four years, although I did draw a lot for the Lampoon, uh, it became clear to me that my best bet was maybe with words rather than pen and ink. And by the time I got out, I think I was pretty set on trying to become a writer. Did you write humor for the Harvard Lampoon? Oh, yeah. And I wrote a lot of light verse. Light verse was everywhere then in newspapers as well as magazines. And uh, it's, uh, you know, poetry is sort of an easy thing for a young person to write. Uh, the, the young people are short of time, basically. Their lives are very demanding, and they're kind of sleepy and preoccupied and skittish. Uh, but you can generally sit for the hour it takes to write a poem. So I wrote a lot of light verse, and uh, the lampoon kind of withered under me. I hope it wasn't my fault, but as the older <laughs> members graduated, there were fewer and fewer of us who were willing to work for the magazine at all. A lot were willing to show up and, and drink beer, but to actually do the work to get the magazine out. So I wound up writing quite a lot of humorous, humorous prose. Were you funny? Uh, as well as uh, I thought I was funny. I was as funny as I could be. I don't think it would hold up terribly well uh, in a in a collection. But yeah, yeah. No, I wrote I wrote funny stuff. Do you write funny stuff now? Uh, there's a kind of smile to it, or a humor, an irony, maybe. Uh, certainly, um, my hope getting out of college was to become the height of my hope was to become like James Thurber or E. B. White or Robert Benchley. Benchley, I read a lot of in high school in study hall, made you laugh out loud, made the teacher frown to have you laughing out loud. But it was, you know, very attractive to a child. You get the impression, if you grew up in the Depression and then World War II, that life is combat. Life is, as my father would say, dog eat dog. And to write stuff that makes people laugh is one way to cause no harm, as far as you can see. Uh, so that seemed to me to be a worthy, a worthy enough objective. But once I got to writing, uh, there was something not humorous <laughs> uh, that I wanted to say and that was in me, and so I became, uh, what can we call it, a serious, a serious fiction writer. When you got to Harvard, you were this kid from a small town in a rural area, and suddenly you were at Harvard with the Kennedys and the America's upper crust. Did you, did you fit in? <laughs> Ted Kennedy was in my class, funnily enough, and one of my um, memories of... Uh, the yard, uh, uh, that's where the dormitories for freshmen were in the, so many classrooms, uh, was seeing this handsome uh, face, uh, big teeth, uh, floating, you know, and that was Ted Kennedy. So yes, I, do, I was in with a lot of uh, rich kids, and kids had been better educated than I, and were more sophisticated. Uh, but uh, there were a lot of us public school types also. It might have been like half and half. And they grouped us. Uh, maybe they wouldn't do that now. But the high school kids, were a lot of them were in my dorm. And so we were all kind of in the same boat of being frightened and overwhelmed, in a way, by all we didn't know, because the prep school education was clearly superior. So a lot of what, to me, was a revelation was old stuff to my 
prep school, prep school friends. So it was a rough first year, as I remember, because you never know. I mean, I was uh, judge smart. I'm smart enough in Shillington High, but uh, this is sort of the big leagues here. Uh, but I did all right and uh, felt better and relaxed a little and had some fun. Uh, saw a girl uh, I fell in love with and. Uh, the Lampoon became a big part of my life there, and so by the time I got out, yes, I'd kind of blended in. I mean, I had the correct clothes by then and knew how to wear dirty old sneakers uh, throughout the winter and other things that were uh, cool or chic. Uh, but inside, inside, I, I kind of resented um, having the Pennsylvania in me uh, uh, burnished away. <laughs> I, I was still pretty loyal to my own inner feelings and also what I'd seen and the sense of struggle that existed in our Shillington home. Uh, economic struggle, struggle to get along. Uh, my mother was trying to be a writer and failing. She was living with her parents, which is very stressful, I think, for a woman, or so she claimed. She said it was stressful uh, being a, a daughter, a wife, and a mother all at once. Uh, so uh, I got some I wouldn't say tragic impressions, but I got uh, impressions that could not be called merely humorous. And so I had, I had a fair amount to say, it seemed to me. My first novel was uh, about old people. I thought living with my grandparents, all of my growing up uh, entitled me to try to write about old people. My grandfather was quite old, uh, old to have a child. Old when, he, old when he had a grandchild. So he was sort of super old, but very dignified, spoke very well. He was a, one of the uh, more English, as they say, Pennsylvania Dutch, in that he uh, spoke the language uh, with care and quite elegantly, in a way. Uh, he also spoke Pennsylvania German, and he and his wife would converse in it, but my mother uh, never learned it, and I only got a few words, which are very expressive. Uh, nothing else, you know, verhuddled for being confused, for example. I still have moments when I feel very verhuddled. Did your mother really, really, really want you to be a writer? Uh, she wanted me to be fulfilled uh, and uh, do what I wanted to do, and I certainly had a creative side. I, I loved the notion of drawing something that would be reproduced in the newspaper, say, and uh, did a lot of posters as a high school, and even as a grade school kid. Uh, the writing, I don't know if she recommended it especially. I saw her do it, trying it, doing it. Uh, the typewriter was sort of magical in that if you push the key, you got a perfectly shaped letter, right, bing, right there. So this whole kind of mechanical, industrial side of becoming published uh, pleased me, maybe as a Pennsylvanian, you know. In Berks County, you either, if you weren't a farmer or worked in the mills, it was not at all clear what you did. I mean, there was a sense of producing something, a crop or a, 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 some um, t textiles or an iron beam, but you know, the, the wish to make something was very much in the air, and I wanted to make my own things, more personal perhaps. but. Uh, no, I don't remember. We used to talk about writing, and uh, she used to give me her stories to read when I was quite young. I think I became one of the younger 
freelance uh, uh, unpaid editors in, in the country, and that I would, at the age of 12, I'd try to read a story and say what I thought about it. And uh, so in that way, I was introduced to some of the nuts and bolts of writing. Is her writing still around anywhere? Uh, she had a charming, uh, delightful, I was so happy for her, but after I was appearing in the New Yorker for a number of years, uh, she had a story accepted, a story about her grandfather's funeral, and maybe had about a dozen stories, some of them quite long, accepted by the New Yorker. So she became a professional writer in her 50s, enough to buy a car, I remember, a Dodge, Dart, I think. She was very proud of that car because she had earned the money and... Uh, uh, she had published two books uh, of these stories. The first one was called uh, Enchantment, about the heroine. It's a kind of a running heroine, the same uh, heroine in each uh, story. Uh, her sense of being odd or different or under some kind of enchantment. And the next one, the last one, is called The Predator. And it's about, I think, living when the ultimate predator death is about to pounce on you. She uh, lived to read proof on it, but didn't live to see the finished book. Uh, she was that close to the final reckoning. What was the first check you ever got for writing? Uh, I sold a poem to some PTA magazine or something called, I think, The Boy Who Makes the Blackboard Squeak. It was about a particular kind of naughty behavior in a in a school, and I think I got $5 for it. The first real money I saw was uh, the New Yorker. Uh, throughout college, I had sent in stories to the New Yorker when I could. I took what writing courses Harvard offered, and Harvard was rather um, avant-garde in that regard, that they did offer some creative writing taught by writers uh, of a sort, uh, professor writers. Uh, but they never took anything. I got some encouraging notes in the end on the rejection slips, which is, you know, for an unpublished uh, uh, kid out of Pennsylvania was uh, in its way exciting. It was some kind of a step. But then the June I graduated, I wrote a story and a poem that they took. I actually got the little letter saying we'd like to take it. I think I got $550, if I can remember, for that first story called Friends from Philadelphia about, based upon a little incident from my own adolescence. Uh, and uh, more than the check, although I valued the check, and the New Yorker used to print very pretty checks then. They all had Eustace Tilly, the guy with the, the top hat, looking at a butterfly on them, uh, so that the check itself was beautiful. I thought my impression of the New Yorker was this magazine is so much better than others. It's so beautiful, every detail is really worked out, and yet there's something very casual about about it. Also, the author's name just appears at the end of if you were signing a letter. There's no little banners saying the story of a broken heart or anything. It was all very cool, and so I was thrilled. Thrilled to get accepted by the New Yorker and was home in Pennsylvania with my bride, uh, whom I married when we were in college, and uh, walked out to the mailbox every day. If you're trying to be a writer, you get very involved with the mail and comings and goings. That three cent, I think it still was, cent stamp. Can you believe it? Three cents would get you across the country. Um, yeah, and there was this little, instead of the usual brown envelope with the story in it and with a little slip, there was a little envelope saying, John of Dyke, blah, blah. 
Uh, and so I knew my heart began to race, and I opened it, and they said, we would like to take your story. So that was a tremendous moment, more tremendous in a way than the check, although once the checks began to come through, I realized I might really make a go of this and become a real writer. And you are still writing for The New Yorker today? Yes, I've been relegated to the back room where the reviews are cranked out, but, uh, and I don't uh, think of as many stories as I used to, and uh, the last one that appeared, appeared last year. It used to be I would certainly write six a year, have six or so published, but they publish f less fiction, and maybe my fiction is uh, becoming uh, an old guy's fiction, and they stuck with me, and for 50 years I did uh, publish a fair amount in The New Yorker. The last story I published was called My Father's Tears. It was about, began with uh, a boy saying goodbye to his father at the Reading Railroad Station, and uh, which then was a bustling place, a thriving place, and seeing uh, in the, my father's face these little sparkly things that were tears, tears. Why is he crying? My going away, obviously, he was mature enough to know that I really was saying goodbye to him, to Pennsylvania, to a stage of life. And uh, it, it's a good story, actually, uh, even as I try to tell it. Um, but it shows that it's uh, Pennsylvania, even 50 years after I've left, it continues to excite me and offer offer material to fictionalize. Do you still write as much, uh, spend as much time writing as you ever did? Uh, embarrassingly enough, I seem to spend more. I used to, when I set up shop with a family and a house and uh, a car, uh, I figured if I could write three hours a day, then I'd be free to either play with the kids and be a father or to help around the house and take up some of the financial slack by being an odd jobs performer, doing odd jobs. That, you know, and I could. I did all sorts of things. Nothing very adventurous in the plumbing department. But yeah, I, uh, I would work around the house. And three hours was about it. There were no really other demands on me. Um, but the older you get and the, the, the older writers die off, uh, demands on me have become greater. Uh, and it's hard for me to get to the really creative project because I have proofs to read and Pennsylvania to go to and all manner of distractions, including a lot of mail to answer. So my wife, my present wife, says I, I write all the time. And I shouldn't lie to people. But my, my image of my life is that I'm sort of right, right from about 9 to 1, and then I'm through. If someone would sit and watch you write from 9 to 1, what would they see? <laughs> uh, they would see a certain amount of procrastination and uh, a certain amount of uh, uh, snacking. And I generally begin the day by uh, trying to clean up yesterday's mail, which uh, can be quicker or take a longer time. And I get settled. Around 10, you begin to feel you better jump in now. It's a little like jumping into the ocean or a swimming pool. Uh, and so I think they would see me as focused as I ever am from about 10 to 1. Around 12.30, you've done enough. And you get to the point where you feel your wheels are spinning and uh, you'd be better off to go on with a, 
a fresh morning mind. I've tried to arrange my life so that I don't have another job. I'm fortunate that I was able to make this arrangement. Uh, I don't teach. My father was a teacher. Enough teaching, I thought. And uh, my mother, you mentioned her education. It was expected in those days that a woman who did have an education, not only college but a master's degree, would teach. Teaching was the only thing women could do, really educated women, unless they were very rare examples of women with a real professional ambition, like becoming a doctor or a lawyer. But they weren't especially encouraged at the specialist schools. So any, and my mother went and taught one day and uh, walked out of the classroom, and that was the end of her uh, very short teaching career. But she, then she felt guilty about that. She, there were a lot of husband-wife teams on the Shillington High faculty. So if she'd been able to bring home a teacher's salary as well as my father, we all would have been richer. But instead, she tried to become a writer and did, to an extent, become a writer. She certainly influenced me in her sense of words and, and that sentences can, words are either ugly or beautiful, and sentences can be beautiful, all that sort of sank in. Are you a stickler for, for grammar and punctuation and precise definitions of words? The New Yorker has rather made me such, since anything that they accept gets vetted quite thoroughly by grammarians. And uh, so, yes, even when I know it, on a novel, when I know it's not going to be appear in the New Yorker, I tend to be sort of fussy. Maybe being fussy is part of being elderly. Uh, certainly my novels, especially Rabbit Run, was meant to be a relief from the New Yorker's care about all these things. It was written in the present tense and very uh, stream of consciousness and about a guy who wasn't very literate uh, and all that was meant to be a, a change from. And in fact, when I come to, came to reread Rabbit Run uh, years later, I realized this is very sloppy in a way. But part of its vitality is the relaxed uh, prose of it. But having written, I became about 1960, I I said to uh, Sean, William Sean, the editor of The New Yorker, that I didn't think the book reviews were worthy. Uh, I didn't say it quite so baldly, but something like that, worthy of the magazine. And uh, he said, well, you think you can do better? And I said, I'll try. And so uh, he fed me a few suitable books. I wrote them. And uh, as other book reviewers uh, died off or wandered away, I became, uh, you know, one a month at least. So that's a lot of reviewing. And I've done a lot of reviewing. I love being in The New Yorker. But I'm not sure it's entirely healthy uh, to <laughs> have devoted so much of one's energy to other people's books and trying to form a judgment of them. But all anyway, my point is that that factual kind of writing uh, uh, really uh, increases the amount of care because you're not writing from a standpoint of any character. You can't excuse yourself that you're just writing the way people think because you're trying to give an intelligent uh, opinion. And so, yeah, my writing has become increasingly obsessed with spelling and grammar. I try not to commit even a modest grammatical sin like a dangling uh, prepositional phrase. Uh, you. Uh do you try to stick to the traditional uh, use of language, or uh, as the language changes, do you adapt to new things that come along? I'm not above trying to learn a new word, yeah, like the word channeling. People kept using it all around me. I said, what is this channeling? 
and uh, I got somebody to explain it to me, and though I think I did use the word once or twice, uh, uh, and would use it again if the occasion arose. So to some degree, uh, also a lot of the books I read are by younger writers, and they, their sense of language differs a little from mine. And uh, so, yeah, I don't, I'm not really a purist. I think that language is uh, of the people. It's, it's a democratic creation. Uh, and uh, in this country, the American language is distinguished by a great many currents, mostly from underneath, uh, uh, have changed and enlivened uh, our language. On the other hand, uh, I, I have never gotten to saying, I, I still resist uh, people saying I could care less when what they mean to say is I couldn't care less. If they could care less, it means they could care somewhat, yes? Um, so, yeah, there's a difference between a new word, a new concept, and just plain mistake. Getting back to watching you write in the morning, um, do you write in the same room all the time? When we moved into uh, our present house, uh, and that was 25 years ago, uh, the question was, where can I write? Our previous house had had a big kind of barn, attached barn, this is New England, uh, with some heat. And I took over this big room, big, built bookcases, was surrounded by um, space. Uh, the only space in the new house seemed to be the old maids' rooms, which were above the kitchen. So I work in four little rooms and a hallway, my own bathroom. It's like uh, Joyce Carol Oates's husband, Ray, once said, it's like a cottage. So it is like a little cottage on top of the kitchen. And I move about in the rooms, depending on what I'm writing. I uh, hop, you could almost say. In one room, I answer the letters and answer the telephone. In another, I have a, an old army desk that I tend to write creatively, often in pencil. Another room has a computer in it where I try to write the book reviews and letters and short stories. And the last room has an easy chair where I try to read. I'm afraid I don't use the reading room as much as I should. Uh, what do you write your novels on? Typewriter, paper, and I've pen, tried computer? various things. I discovered looking over some old manuscripts that apparently I wrote a novel called Rabbit Redux, which was the sequel to Rabbit Run on a typewriter. I have no memory of that. Uh, generally, uh, the books, and especially the rabbit novels, in my sense of them, are written by hand on the backs of other manuscripts, and then I uh, type them up. But that the pencil paper, silence, all that induces creative flow, and you can hear the uh, dialogue better and see the rooms and scenery better. So I tend to write the novels to make a long answer short, I tend to write the novels uh, in pencil on uh, paper uh, and then type it up myself into a computer. I write the book reviews and the short stories directly on the, on the computer and uh, poetry when I write it, and it's rare that I do anymore, but I still do. Uh, it's by pencil and paper. So, yeah, it's a shame that my writing isn't more legible because if it was, I could hand it to a secretary uh, who would type it up into beautiful. But you know, my handwriting is a typical product of the educational system of the time. I resisted the Palmer, the Palmer method that the teachers so beautifully illustrated with the big sweeping strokes. And I developed a kind of semi-printing that uh, deteriorates into something only I can read. Do you write fast or slow? 
Uh, not slow, really, I don't think, uh, but not especially fast either. I'm not Jack Kerouac, uh, nor am I uh, Gustave Flaubert. I'm sort of in the middle. I, my quota was, I figured in a novel when I was new to the game, uh, that if I could just do three pages a day, that's a little less than a thousand words. That would be about right and would be a day's work. And so, so it's been, it's still the quota in my mind. You get a stretch of dialogue or action where you can write more and should write more, but uh, you try not to force it. You try not to write badly because it's harder to change writing once it's there than it is to when it work when it's in, still in your head. Are there times when you, when you agonize over it and then you struggle with it and, and times when it just pops out? Or some, you... some days are <laughs> easier than others. Uh, and the beginning of anything, especially a novel, is hard because you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, yet you hope that in the end it'll have a coherence and that the ending and the uh, beginning will chime. Well, you know, the reader looking back can see a coherent thing. So there, there's a lot of groping and fumbling in the beginning and you do despair and sometimes you even give up. I've had a number of novels. One novel about high school that uh, I thought I could write because I knew high school, I'd been to high school, cared about high school. My father, furthermore, was a high school teacher. All that seemed to be uh, in favor of it, but in fact, after 200 pages, I read some aloud to my uh, wife, and just in reading it aloud, I realized how lifeless it was, how flat. It's odd, isn't it? Uh, that, but there has to be some step out of your own experience. Something has to be imagined to go with all that you remember. Uh, but there must be something unreal. Rabbit Run, uh, I was not like that. I'm shorter, shorter than he, was not a high school athlete, and so on, and I didn't stay in Reading. So all these things were different uh, from me, and yet he was a figure that I could animate with my own uh, inmost sense of things. That, that novel that you did 200 pages and set aside, did you throw it away, or is it still sitting around unfinished? I think it sits in some... Harvard archive. I gave a lot of my papers away, uh, but uh, I didn't really use it. I, I've written, maybe I did use it more than I know. I have written a number of short stories that take place in high schools, um, but uh, that particular story, I don't know uh, why it, it uh, fizzled, but one of the tricks of, I guess, art is to recognize a fizzle when you, when you have it. It's very hard to admit that something you've worked on for weeks or even months is, is useless, but sometimes that admission is very cleansing and you go forward with renewed strength. Now you mentioned your rabbit books, which you won two Pulitzer Prizes for, and can you, first of all, for somebody who has never read them, well, why should they read them? <laughs> Uh, the first one was written uh, very much with an American problem in mind, a kind of uh, boy of my era who excelled at high school, excelled at high school sports, and then his life was kind of post-18, it kind of drifts downhill. And my father would bring home uh, from his journeys and travels in Brooks County tales of such unfortunate former heroes who become messy, uh, bad marriages, bad behavior, and so on. And so Rabbit Run was an attempt to empathize with such a person who, whose inner sense of himself uh, was enhanced enough by the high school experience that he, everything else is kind of unsatisfactory, and he's looking for something 
else. Uh, that was my message uh, in that book, and uh, I never meant to go back to him, but uh, 10 years later, it got to be time to write a novel. I had wrestled with James Buchanan for some of those years and hadn't been able to make that book go. And the 69, uh, which was 10 years after I wrote Rabbit Run, was a quite an exciting year in this country. Uh, uh, Vietnam protests, racial uh, uh, protests, uh, the sexual revolution, uh, hippieism, uh, people leaving home, leaving respectable middle class homes and saying the middle class is for the birds, I'm having no part of it. Uh, there was just a great deal of sudden action after the long quiescence of the Truman and Eisenhower years, all the things that good 50s children like I had grown up aspiring to suddenly were scorned. Uh, so anyway, it was an exciting time and things were happening, including the moonshot against all this uh, uh, failure and violence in Vietnam and elsewhere. There was the triumph of the moonshot. So I thought it'd be interesting to see what rabbit now 10 years older, would be making of this and how he would be involved in it. And he became a kind of parad paradigm of an American, an average American, uh, hopeful but kind of ill-educated and uh, uh, in a way basically un uninterested in bigger issues, but the bigger issues came home to him. That sequel went well enough and was well-reviewed that the two more seemed called for at 10-year intervals. I don't know if I'm making this sound attractive to our unknown <laughs> uh, viewer, but um, I became very uh, engaged with him uh, as, in a sense, a loser, but maybe not totally, and as an American uh, experiencing the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, uh, with us, with me. You mentioned the critics liked it. Do you read your reviews? Not all of them, and it's probably not a good idea, but you can't avoid all of them. I mean, the first wave and the ones that appear in the Times or uh, the New Yorker, if it reviews, uh, uh, all that. Yeah, somehow, somehow you can't quite avoid it. Uh, luckily, luckily, unlike an actor, say, who has an ongoing play, you can't really change a book that's been printed and bound and people are trying to sell it. So in a way, uh, you can ignore it. You can let it sting for maybe a day, but in the end, you can't do much about it. Uh, you can change a few errors that are pointed out, and a few grammatical errors, if any are, but by and large, the book is set. Do you ever take into account what critics have said or what viewers have said or what, what has sold well in the past when you sit down to write your next one? To some small, I hope it's a small degree, you're influenced by what people have said, like if they say Updike always writes about middle-class adultery, then you try to think of a novel that wouldn't have any in it at all, or Updike keeps writing about Pennsylvania, and you try to write a novel about New England. So to that degree, you're sensitive to, you, you try to make each book um, a bit of an adventure, first for yourself, and then for your ideal reader, wherever he or she may be. Now, you have uh, 
taken on a lot of different topics on uh, in your books. You've written about uh, Brazil and about uh, Tristan and Isolde, about Shakespeare, and your latest, as we write this, your latest one is Terrorist, about a, an American youth. Did, are there times when you think that you've gra grabbed onto a topic that's just beyond you? Well, some people suggested that I did, uh, did that <laughs> with that book, but I thought before beginning it that I could actually uh, get inside an American terrorist. Uh, he's not the worst terrorist you've ever uh, met. He's really, in many ways, a very nice American boy. He's the son of a, of a mixed marriage. His Irish-American uh, mother uh, was seduced or seduced an uh, Egyptian exchange student. And so he's half Egyptian and half Muslim, but uh, the father disappears. And uh, I thought, yeah, there's so much terrorism in the papers, and we're all kind of obsessed. How can we not be after 9-11? That, uh, that I thought it was a topic that would be a little off my beaten track, if I have a beaten track, and yet one I thought I could do. Uh, uh, depressed former industrial powerhouse cities interest me, uh, not just from growing up around Reading, but my father came from Trenton. We used to go over to Trenton. New Jersey is full of these cities whose use is, you know, they, they, a city is a funny thing. It can't just be thrown away like a, a Kleenex. It, it, uh, people continue to live there. <laughs> they continue to make citizens of that community, even though the industries have failed or have gone south, gone abroad. Um, so that kind of city where that might breed an American terrorist, I thought I could bring to life enough. And so it was, you can't really judge how good or bad a book you've written is, but one way you can tell if it's really bad is if you don't sit down to it each day with some excitement and pleasure. And that book excited me and gave me pleasure in certain scenes in it. Uh, I liked actually the uh, terror, the, um, thriller a part of it uh, since so many of my books just ask you stick with this because the writing is interesting or the characters remind you of your mother or some other reason here was one in which there was a real threat a threat of violence uh, so yeah and it took some research I was driven around New Jersey to sort of look at these northern New Jersey cities to get a flavor um, yeah when, when you sit down to write a book like this or any book when you start off you have zero words written down so far. What do you do first? <laughs> think of the title and then th think of the first sentence. <clears throat> you uh, you start to begin without a title. Uh, I know a lot of writers, especially in the 20s, uh, 30s, Faulkner, Hemingway, they, they seem to write the book and then think of the title of some more or less uh, esoteric quote, uh, Across the River and Into the Trees, or The Sound and the Fury. All these titles were kind of stuck on afterwards, but I I like to begin with the title, often a very simple one, Couples, Terrorist, uh, Brazil, and build from that. Uh, it's good to be also have uh, some sense of where you're going, or what the ending is going to be, uh, how a book will end, and you have to ha have some feeling for the beginning just to write down the first sentence. What you don't know is the middle, will the middle gel, will the people take on life, uh, the characters in Rabbit uh, Run, the, the initial batch uh, in the first novel, uh, because they were Pennsylvanians and because I liked being in my mind's Pennsylvania, 
uh, they were fun, uh, fun to write about. I didn't have any trouble making them do things or talk. Uh, and all four uh, novels, uh, I wouldn't say they wrote themselves, but they wrote themselves fairly easily. I love the present tense. It's like a little kitty car. You get into it, <laughs> off you go. No looking back, no past tense, none of that grammar. He had once thought blah, blah. It's uh, a, a fun tense. Uh, I'm saying fun like I'm a high school. But uh, kid, uh, yeah, it, it was exhilarating when I first began to write in the present tense, which was in Rabbit Run. Is writing fun for you, or is it work? Both. Both. It is work, and it uh, doesn't get especially easier. I mean, you, you, each book is a different set of problems and a different challenge, so it's not like it's something you learn and then can apply. You're constantly trying to relearn it or learn something new, and to that extent, uh, it doesn't get, uh, doesn't get easier. In fact, it might get a little harder, because as your brain loses enough gray cells, this is, an, after all, a mental activity like any others, and you know you, you know a word and you can't think of where, what it is. That's very exasperating if you're a writer trying to get to the end of the sentence. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I've always enjoyed it. The whole idea of sitting down with paper and making something that will be turned into a, a manufactured artifact and offered to people and the fact that I'm doing this by myself, that I'm more or less a cottage, a one-man cottage industry, and that I do get some input from edit. I don't have an agent, so I, don't, I lack that kind of input. I do read the critics, as we've discussed, and I do have editors, and I do have to get it past the New Yorker editors to get it into print there. But by and large, it's a very solitary effort, and being an, having been an only child and being able to entertain myself uh, with books has, uh, makes it a congenial uh, task. A lot of people with the intelligence and the talent uh, can't stand the, the solitude of it, I think. Do you, do you work hard at being clever or coming up with quotable quotes in your work? Uh, I hope not. I try to fit the words to what I see in my mind's eye and the dialogue I'm hearing, and that's really all that interests me about the about the words. Uh, I don't. Uh, something too clever sticks out. It's like a raisin in a piece of raisin. I mean, when you buy raisin bread, of course, you expect raisins, but it's like no. It's a. Uh, it sticks out, and what you're trying to do is create an illusion of a vicarious reality. Uh, and so, anything that breaks that, or threatens to break that spell, is probably bad writing. Do you use the internet at all? No, I'm scared of it. Um, uh, things invade it. <laughs> Bugs get in, and uh, my wife has a machine that's connected, and she tells me that it's a jungle out there. Turns on the machine to do something, and all these ads pop up. Uh, I think it's a uh, great idea that's almost sinking under the load of uh, its own exploitation. Do, do you have any sense of whether it's making people more literate or less literate? Uh, if I had to answer that, if I had to really make a feeling, I would say it's making them less literate. People are literate when writing, reading are hot activities, and they were hot in the 19th century. People read then, I think you know, they read in the afternoon, that rainy climate in England. Uh, uh, people read, uh, it was what, you know, one of the few media around. 
now we have so many other kind of media, electronic media, that uh, I think it began with the movies, really. Once you could pay a quarter and go and see giant images up on the screen tell a story, uh, the novelist was in some trouble. But it's a slow, creeping kind of trouble. And there is a kind of reading, after all, in using the internet. So it is in itself an exercise in literacy. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure the loss is total loss. Speaking of movies, uh, only a couple of your books have been made into movies. Um, uh, Rabbit Run. Rabbit Run made into one that when, uh, when Reading tried to have a film festival the other week, they couldn't find a print of it. Uh, it's that's that. And it's a rare movie in this age of the DVD revival. That was it a bad a, movie? or? Well, I saw it, and it was a movie flawed by the fact that the uh, producers and director liked the book too much. So it never really took off from the book. It never used the book just as it wanted to. It was kind of a reading. It was a reading or an enacting of the book. Uh, and pretty, uh, I, I felt it wasn't working as a film. But it was so faithful to the book, I couldn't complain. Um, the other movies, uh, Witches of Eastwick is the only movie that was a commercial success. There have been a couple movies for television made, including one of a set of stories called The Maple Stories. Uh, but by and large, yes, I'm not appealing, unlike, say, Larry McMurtry, I'm not appealing to the people who make movies. The Terrorist is actually un under option now, but it's a long way between being under option and having a movie made. Uh, in general, I think once they get into the actual text, they discover that too much of its value is in the way of putting things. It's in the words themselves, thoughts, uh, harmonies uh, that are impossible to really capture at length in film. How long do you think you will continue to write? Uh, until, uh, until I'm dead, possibly. Uh, I may write less, and maybe I should write less. And uh, when I feel the things, you know, the markets already, there are fewer markets than short stories than there used to be. And so when a genre keeps coming back at you, you probably will lose interest. But I'm willing to bet that uh, any novel I write for the immediate future would find a publisher. And uh, I've built my whole life around that morning stint of writing. I don't know what I'd do with my time. I might go crazy or become a menace to society if I don't write. We are out of time. We've been talking with John Updike, author of many, many books, including these two, about President James Buchanan. John Updike, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.